0: have more about Jesus to learn this morning that I think will be a glorious encouragement to us this morning as we really consider at the end of this prayer who Jesus is praying for. I remember as a young man studying this passage in my time with the lord and being greatly encouraged as i realized who jesus was praying for remember this is the high priestly prayer chapter 17 he begins to have he, he begins with a request to the father that he would be glorified and he points out jesus points out and again he is praying this prayer in the presence of his disciples. It seems that they have been walking towards the edge of town and he stops. And so he's praying with them, listening to him. And he made it clear that he has been glorified, that his glory has been shown in the work, the mission that he accomplished in his earthly ministry. And also in about what he's ready to do on the cross that we will see, um, in just, in just a few short weeks, I, I should say just as um, some information, further information about this series, um, the Lord has really led, and maybe it's also a personal desire, but as we get toward the end of this and start talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, you know, we only have a few months till we celebrate Easter here. And I almost can't help myself, I really would like to end the Gospel of John around that time. So that is going to be my goal in this study. We're going to, in the next few weeks, um, actually today I was going to cover the rest of the High Priestly prayer of Jesus. And as I studied this more, I just sensed, you know, I want to be more careful, walk through this more carefully so that we understand and we don't, we have a full understanding of what Jesus is praying here. So we're only going to cover three verses today, John 17, 20 through 23. We'll cover the rest of the prayer next week. Um, And then we're going to add some accounts from some of the other gospels to kind of fill in uh, the events of what took place in this Passion Week and the Crucifixion of Christ, which will then take us um, right to Easter and looking forward to finishing up John uh, the week after that. And so I think all this will come together nicely. But Jesus is at the end of this high priestly prayer. And if you'll notice in verse 20, he says, I do not ask these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word the second part of his prayer was for the 11 disciples the first was that he would be glorified in what he was about to do in his crucifixion and resurrection and that ultimately that the father would be glorified through what jesus would accomplish and then he refers to, he prays for his disciples that they would continue to grow And they would be kept and preserved through the awful things they were about to experience in his death. And they would be preserved until his resurrection. And he would appear to them again, his ascension. And the Holy Spirit would come and enable them for a far greater ministry than they could have ever imagined or comprehended at this point as he's praying for them. He prayed for that as well. He prayed for them to be sanctified, to be set apart in the work, through the word of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of God. And part of that sanctification for them would be their purification as well, their spiritual growth set apart for the service that they were about to take part in. And we have the whole book of Acts, right, that describes God's work in these 11 men and those that would hear, um, that would be converted through their testimony. And then Jesus, in this last paragraph, prays for those that will hear as a result of the ministry of these 11 disciples. And um, as he finishes up this prayer, there's a very important focus that he has here that really ought to strike us and that really ought to cause us to reflect. And that is on the unity of future believers Those who would directly hear the disciples' testimony, those disciples would write through the power of the Holy Spirit. God-breathed scriptures, and those that heard their message and believed in Christ would write. God would use them to write the the rest of the New Testament, and people would would believe through those Holy Spirit-inspired writings, and they would also hear the testimony of those that had trusted Christ through their testimony, it would continue to go on and on all the way to us today. And that's the encouragement, folks. At the end of this prayer, Jesus is praying directly for us. For us, as believers, we are a part of this prayer that he's praying. And it's such an important one. Out of all the things that you, if you were there, the 11 disciples, what would you want Jesus to pray for in his last prayer? They don't know about what's to happen yet, but what would you want Jesus to pray for? We have a lot of things that we have concerns about, but folks, note this. The greatest concern of Jesus is the unity of his followers, and we're going to see this morning a prayer that followers be one. And let's just look at these three verses, read them together. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, what glorious truth we have in this. And yet maybe even somewhat unexpected as we realize that Jesus is praying for believers that would hear the gospel through these 11. And that extends all throughout church history to us today, that Jesus is praying for us, and he is praying very specifically. Father, may we listen to his prayer carefully, understand what his concerns are, and make them our concerns. That we may be in unity, but in a certain kind of unity, Lord, that we're gonna look at here in a few minutes. Help us to understand what this unity is that Jesus refers to, and help us to desire it that we may, even Village Chapel Baptist Church, that we may be a testimony of Jesus' mission, of the truth of why he came, and also of your love for us and your love for the Son. That's a high bar. Father we know that you can help us to do that through our submission to the spirit's work in our lives. Give us understanding about what Jesus wants from us in this prayer. Or it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Jesus is praying that his followers all would be one. And first of all in these in verses 20 and 21, Jesus desires unity of believers to testify of Jesus' mission, that a unity of believers and the love that they would have for each other and an understanding of the truth would actually testify to the truth of why Jesus came and why he died on the cross, really the gospel, folks. We can be a testimony in our unity. And so verse 20, as we begin to look at this passage, we find, again, as I mentioned, Jesus not only now praying for his immediate disciples gathered around him, but also for the future believers that would believe through these disciples' further ministry after he would ascend. Again, who does this include? The church throughout history and all of us today. Jesus prays for us. But he says who would believe in me through their word. Well, this isn't their own ideas or their own word or their own opinions. But when he says their word, he's referring to the word of truth that they have received from him, the word. Their word that they are going to testify to others is from the word Jesus has given them the word, the gospel of truth. His gospel And so now it is so a part of them, or it will be, that it will be their word and people will hear the gospel, the truth of Christ, and trust in him. And Jesus prays for them as well. Well, what is the content of this prayer? Well, that's verses 21 through the rest of the chapter. Let's look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying here. That phrase at the beginning of verse 21, that they may all be one, is the language of unity. That they may all agree, be one together. Um, and all of that would take place by the acceptance of the word that he has given to them. What kind of unity are we talking about here? The world talks about a lot of different kinds of unity, political unity. And we have in our world today, a desire for religious unity, all these denominations and sects and different things of um, religion. And, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just all come together and be in unity? Folks, the type of unity that even is talked about in broader terms in religion is not. Let's be clear, the type of unity that Jesus is talking about here. He's much more specific. How has he described as he's talking about the unity that he wants his followers to have? He's also described his disciples in this manner. The disciples are those, you go back to verse 8, look at verse 8 in chapter 17 there. The disciples are those whom Jesus has given Basically, the words that you gave me and they have received them. This unity is based on them receiving the truth that Jesus has given to them. This is a doctrinal unity that we agree on the truths of Christ that he has given. And it says in verse 8, again, continue on, and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. This unity that Jesus is praying for has a basis in the truth of God's word. And that's important. Um, Dr. Mark Minnick put it this way. This unity is not institutional unity, but spiritual unity, almost one in essence that they have believed that you sent me is The spiritual unity that comes from accepting the truths of the gospel, the truths of God's word, and that is where unity resides, and that's important. We're going to get back into describing a little bit more of that unity here in just a few minutes, but it's important to understand this is a specific unity that is doctrinal that comes from agreement on the truths of the gospel and of God's word something else that should really amaze us here. He says that they all may be one, that unity that comes from the fact that they have received Jesus' truth and they believed in that. And then he says this, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Doesn't this almost um, seem like Jesus is requesting the same sort of relationship or oneness that he and the father experience. You might say, well, that's amazing. How could that be? What what is Jesus saying here? We know the reason that may puzzle us is because we know, first of all, that Jesus, and he has described this throughout the Gospel of John, that special oneness that he has with the Father, that relationship that he has with the Father, is unique. And there's a, a oneness and a unity between the Father and the Son in the Godhead that, let's be clear, folks, we can never experience because we're not God. And we know that. I think all of us know that and realize that. But then how can Jesus almost seem to refer to us in some way experiencing that kind of oneness and unity. It really is remarkable. That unity that he's describing, he says, "The just as you, Father, are in me, notice he's using those words, and in you, that they may also be in us. That sounds familiar. Turn back to John 15, and another reminder here, we saw this um, Truth mentioned as Rick read John 14 and the unity of the father and son that would affect the ministry of his disciples. But what Jesus is referring here is the truths that he um, taught them and discussed with them in John chapter 15 and verse one. He said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. And that's what Jesus is referring to in this verse in John chapter 17, verse 21, is that same concept of abiding in Him. And we discussed this before, but just a reminder: what does it mean? Do you remember? To abide in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? He describes believers as an organic part of Jesus the vine. And how do we abide? Certainly through faith. We put our faith and trust in Jesus. But then dependence and acting in accordance with the vine, with what Jesus requires of us to grow in our character in the same way of the character of the vine as we depend upon him and his power works through us we abide depending on him for spiritual growth and we find here that true followers will depend upon God to help and for growth and for fruitfulness And this relationship can then be described as abiding in the vine or in him. And let's go back now to chapter 17, verse 21, with that background reminder again. As he's describing the relationship, just as you, Father, are in me, verse 21, and I in you, that they also may be in us, abiding in us. He's not referring here to the same essence of unity that the Father and the Son have, but the ability that we have to abide in Jesus Christ. And isn't it true then, as he is praying here in this last part of this high priestly prayer, that all of his Father's the followers, excuse me, Jesus is praying, all of his followers will be in him, will abide in him, that then as well, they are also abiding in unity in the Father. And that's how this all works together. As we abide and depend and have faith in Christ and as he works in us, we are abiding in him and we have that unity with him in the father in ministry. Um, and it is of a truth as we think of this practically then, that the more we depend on Jesus for spiritual growth, for fruitful ministry, And, as we're going to see here, for unity among each other. Unity is a tough thing, even in a small Baptist church sometimes. But when we depend upon Jesus to help us with that, he will do his work. And the world will marvel, will stand back, and be amazed, and even be drawn to Christ through the work of the Spirit that God does. So that is the unity there that he's referring to of abiding in him, and thus we're abiding in the Father for the purpose, at the end of verse 21, that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a purpose for this unity, a consequence, an outgrowth of this unity that's so important, right? The world will marvel and be drawn to Christ. Isn't that the case with the early church? The world marveled as they looked at the power and the the, the um, work that Jesus was doing through the Holy Spirit. And they marveled and were confused and were a little, they were a, a little concerned, greatly concerned as well. And that's what began the, eventually the persecution of the early church. The early church made a great stir as it proclaimed what Jesus did and his mission, his accomplished mission, and the gospel and people were saved. Folks, and I think sometimes we look at our at the church today and we feel kind of like, you know, I'm not sure that the world is marveling at us anymore. And I wonder sometimes if we feel that way because there's a lack of the type of unity that Jesus is talking about here in local churches today. Maybe in some way. The world doesn't marvel as much as because they don't see Jesus working in the church. He's there, but because of a lack of unity, it's not seen, and there's a lack of love, which we'll get into in just a minute, and the church is not as um, transparent and as uh, vibrant a testimony as it was. Even with that, though, even though we feel that way sometimes, is that legitimate? Well. We have to pray for God and work in our own church. That certainly, that's not the case with us. But overall, right? What Jesus is saying happened. The world did the world believe through the testimony of the church in the mission that that um, the Father sent the Son and and what He uh, accomplished. Yes. The church did have an evangelistic impact, and it continues to have ever since Pentecost. Jesus has fulfilled this and accomplished his mission in his followers. And we've seen people come to Christ all throughout church history, even if we don't feel today that the church is different as it used to be. It can be, folks. And the unity, here's the point here, the unity of the gospel within the church Causes many who are of the world to believe in the work of the Son, oh, excuse me, the work of the Father, who sent the Son, and what He accomplished. We can certainly look at the persecuted church today, can't we? And see, even though we we sense more and more persecution coming to the church today, we know that there are people all over the world in other countries that are are giving their lives for the cause of Christ. And they certainly are um, the success of what is described here as people are seeing the unity and the love of the people of the church. They are stirring people up. They are making an impact. And the church in one way or another has done that all the way since Jesus stated these words and since he began the church on that day of Pentecost. And so Jesus' prayer for the unity of believers to testify of his mission and his accomplished mission has happened in the church, but it needs to continue to happen. It needs to continue to happen here. Folks, as people come to visit, they ought to get a sense and maybe they they stick around for a while and they watch us. They ought to get a sense of a love and a, and a unity doctrinal unity, unity around the truths of the gospel and the truths of scripture but they ought to get a sense of of a unity that draws them to make them say something's going on here. I've never seen people get along like that before. That's impossible on a human level. There's something else going on here. There's something supernatural going on in this church. And I want to know more about it. And we can attract people, point people to Jesus Christ. And he is praying that we'll do that in our unity. Unity is important. D.A. Carson, a scholar, put it this way. I think this is helpful. As a display of genuine love amongst the believers attests that they are Jesus' disciples, so this display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the revealer who the Father has sent you desire to be that kind of testimony as a church for Christ? I hope you do. God will work through us if we have that kind of desire. Well, number two, Jesus also desires unity of believers to testify not only of the gospel of his accomplished mission, but to testify of God's love. Let's continue to look at verse 22 here. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. And that language, again, of oneness, as the Father and the Son are one, really ought to catch our attention and amaze us and think, Lord, can we really have that kind of unity? I want that kind of unity as a church family. Is it possible? We're going to find out it is. But something even before we get there. Isn't it interesting? He says the glory that you have Given me that Jesus says, Now I will give to these followers. What is this glory that he speaks of that he's going to give the followers? Jesus has spoken quite a bit about glory recently as we've studied on these chapters in John. If you'll remember, he has just prayed. The first part of this prayer was that, Lord, let me be glorified. And he prays. He's looking forward. He talks about being back with his heavenly father and enjoying the glories of heaven that he has left. The praise, remember we saw this in Isaiah, that praise of the heavenly beings and all that Jesus experienced, that worship and praise. He looks forward to having that glory again. Well I hope that as you think of that glory that Jesus has referred to you understand that's not the type of glory that he's talking about here that he's giving to his followers because we don't we only Jesus only God is worthy of that kind of worship he's not talking about his glory in which he would give us that we are worthy of worship certainly that's not what he's talking about well then what is he what is he talking about then there's another type of glory that he has referred to in his teaching and he has referred to the full scope of his character the revelation of himself and his earthly ministry that brought glory to god do you remember that jesus has said multiple times i have accomplished the mission i have brought you glory father and now he's praying For this glory that he's giving to his disciples and his followers and that he gives to us as well to the glory of accomplishing the mission that the father has given to us to be successful in what he's called us to do. And that glory then as we successfully carry out the mission that God has for us as his followers to share the gospel, to be in unity together as a church family. Um, As we're successful in that, we bring glory not to ourselves, but we bring glory to the Father. And so Jesus, specifically in verse 22, the glory that you have given to me in my successful accomplishment of the mission, I pray that they will have that glory too, that they may be one, even as we are one. Again, Jesus talks about this. In reflecting the unity between the Father and the Son, it's remarkable. And yet we can reflect that unity when we allow, when we humble ourselves as believers and as a church ministry to allow Jesus to grow us in maturity and unity The Bible does use other analogies for this vital unity. Have you been paying attention as we continue, as we've gone through the gospel of John throughout the new Testament? He's talked about, we just looked at abiding in the vine. That is a unity of believers with Jesus and with the father. Beautiful picture there. And I hope you've understood that. He gives us another picture in Ephesians and in Romans of the body of Christ, the, Body of believers, believers being in union with Christ as the head, and He's given us another illustration as well: the family of God. That old song, "I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God." Well, we are when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We are a part of a spiritual family. We're renewed, and all of these analogies describe the unity that we have in Christ. But folks, this one that Jesus supreme illustration if I could put it that way it towers above them all and that is that the unity of the father and the son that we can experience that in some way or another that is amazing and you know I'll just say as a side note here for myself as well I've been really thankful for the interest and for um, the discussion that I've had with, with many of you in our series on the conscience of Sunday evenings. I'm looking forward tonight to again, presenting those truths and talking about that further. There's been a lot of interest and a lot of questions and that's always great. And it's been very helpful for me too. I've come to decide in my own life that, that uh, this is one of those areas in Christian living that people need more understanding that we really don't understand how God works in the conscience like we should, and we can But even with all that interest in that topic, folks, I found as I'm studying this that I'm wondering, this is even more amazing, more marvelous in the fact that somehow as we function together as the body of Christ and fellowship together as we're in Christ, that he describes us to have the same kind of unity as the Father and the Son, that also ought to pique our interest. That ought to cause us to think, wow, I'm not sure that we reflect that in any way that we should in our culture today. The the, the, the wording here is such that it really ought to cause us to pause and think and reflect. This is amazing. This is important to Jesus Christ. The supreme illustration. That we would have that unity, that that in some form or fashion, it reflect the unity of the Father and the Son. That glory again that He refers to in verse twenty two is the glory of carrying out the mission that God has for us, and we can glorify God as Village Chapel Baptist Church today, this week, this year, by depending upon Jesus, abiding in him, letting the Holy Spirit work through us and being successful in our mission. And we can bring glory to God as well as be unified together as a church family. Marvelous truths here. One more verse, verse 23 this morning. He says, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. So that the Father may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. How is it possible for Jesus to be in his followers? We understand, he says, you and me, that unity of the Father and the Son. In one sense, we understand it. In another sense, as much as we reflect on it, we'll never fully understand it. It's just beyond our comprehension, the unity of the Trinity. We, we assent to it, but after a while, just kind of short circuits our minds. But at the same time, for him then to say that we can have that unity, I in them, that unity with Christ, what is he referring to? And how do we abide in him? Well, remember, folks, what is Jesus about to do? He's about to perform the work of the cross so that he can indwell believers through faith in him he will do the work and we depend upon him in faith and he will literally indwell us we will be he will be in us through the work of the holy spirit the closest type of relationship you could have And that's why Jesus has to die and he has to be raised again and go away. His disciples don't understand this yet, but he will have a closer relationship with them when he returns to his father than he could ever have with them at this point in their ministry, because he will be indwelling them. You can't have a closer relationship than that. And we can have that today. Every believer that's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have Jesus in you, dwelling in us. And if that's the case, since he's in the Father, his indwelling in us means that we have unity with the Father. That makes sense, right? Logical progression there. And so that's how we can say, I and them, his work that he's about to accomplish, he will be in them. And you and me. And this will allow them here, are these amazing words may become perfectly one that word perfectly may cause us to stumble is jesus saying that in this world it's possible to have perfect unity as believers i don't know that any of us can even point to one example of perfect unity within the church even for a church that's well known of getting along pretty well but perfect unity is that really what jesus is saying here Well, we have to go to the meaning behind the Greek word here. Jesus is not saying that we're going to be perfected in our unity as believers in this life. Although I will say, I think we accept far less, we have far less of a burden for unity than we should. We're, We're far more casual about this very important truth than Jesus is. But we can't be perfectly unified in this life. But that's not really what Jesus is saying here. This word actually has the idea of coming to completion or full growth, that we will come to a full growth in our unity together in this life so that we continue to mature. And as we grow together in this unity that he's referring to, we'll have some marvelous consequences here as this happens. The end of verse 23 The world may know that you sent me. Again, they'll have that picture of the accomplished mission of Christ. And they'll also see the love of the Father that he has for his followers. Folks, we may get discouraged sometimes as Christians. We may look around us and say, "Wow, is this really worth it? All the, the, the hostility and all that we have to go through, and sometimes it seems to be an unbeliever, is the easier choice. And it is the wide road, right? Folks, never remember this. Friends, always keep this in your mind that as believers, we have the love of the Father on us, that He loves us, that He cares for us. And out of everything else that we think we're missing, we have the ultimate gift and blessing of the Father's love for us. And the world will see that and be envious and be attracted to want to know more because for all the things that the world has and all the, the, the things that, that, that they seek after, there is this huge hole in every individual that they're looking for a way to fill it. And it can only be filled with Jesus Christ with an experience of the love of the father. And we get to experience something that everyone that's rejected Christ in the world out there longs, To have, and they don't even know it. We have the love of the Father, the love of Jesus Christ, and that will be a testimony. As our church has this kind of unity, it will showcase the love of God in us, and it will literally have a ripple effect in the world. Maybe not as powerful or or as much as we'd want to see, but folks, the church has definitely, um, God has used the church to proclaim the gospel and bring people to Christ all throughout church history. It has had an effect in the world as people see the love of Christ in the church. It will influence the world's darkness. Um, And that is how then that Jesus, as he's praying for the unity of believers, we testify of God's love. God uses that to draw people to want to know more and trust Christ through the gospel. Well, as we finish up here, there's some important application, especially on this issue of unity that I want to make clear. We need to understand, again, what is, I want to make sure that we understand what type of unity this is. And I've already described it this way, that it is doctrinal unity, that it just isn't a bunch of people getting together all over the world or a bunch of different religions, even those religions that have rejected Christ there are all kinds of denominations today that one time had a good start, but now you can go to what we call a liberal denomination today and they'll argue about the essence of who Jesus was who Jesus is. They'll argue about it whether he's even the Son of God or not. and there's not an adherence to the truths of Jesus and who sent him and who he is and therefore there is no unity. With, the, with that kind of religion, as much as the world tries to bring that together, and even some, sometimes well-meaning believers, maybe sometimes not so much, get caught up in that, and they get caught up in trying to bring denominations and unity of world religion, and they lose this important point that it has to be unity, spiritual unity, centered around agreement in the truths of God's word. There's no unity if we don't have unity of the gospel and unity over the truths of God's word over doctrine. So what is this unity that Jesus is referring to here? Let me just describe it this way. It's a gospel-based unity in which the members agree in doctrine, that we give assent to the truths of the word of God, of who Jesus is and what the Bible says, and also in defining sin. And the breaking of God's commandments, and our need for atonement. Ephesians 4, let me just read to you. We, we did a study recently out of Ephesians. and Ephesians, Paul describes the unity of the church, and he describes it this way, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, eagerly maintaining within the church. And he says, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, there is doctrine that we that must unify us. And we can't unify with other religions or churches that won't assent to the truth of the gospel. Paul makes it clear. And he says later on in verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 4, the unity, there's that word, of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature, that we may no longer be children, carried about by every wind of doctrine. This unity, Paul's making clear, is uh, dependent upon agreeing upon the truths of Scripture. We have to agree in doctrine. That is the unity that Jesus is talking about here. We've all driven by some... A church, and even when we go on trips and things, we like to go through picturesque New England and some of these small towns. You see this beautiful church, right? The church of such and such. And then I don't need to go into a lot of detail about this, but you see a rainbow flag. And we all know what that means. Unfortunately, the world has hijacked God's wonderful symbol of, that He gave after the flood. And we need to do our best to reclaim that, by the way. Um, but we know what that means to a liberal world agenda and, and liberal religion. And many times un- with that flag, you'll see togetherness or unity or something like that. And that is a church who is saying that we that things that God says is sin, we don't agree with, come together in unity with us and just love everyone regardless and just ignore this this sin that you know that describes and we can we can look at that and say we don't have any unity with that kind of church because we can't just let go of those moral issues when god describes sin as sin our world needs to know that they need atonement that they need rescuing from that sin not just making the sin legitimate so we can just pass on over it we can't unify with churches that would do that think of the methodist church and if you've read biographies of john wesley and how god marvelously used him and hundreds were saved um, as a result of his trust in christ right and yet and and the uh movement that he started eventually became the methodist church maybe you know some history of that when the methodist church started. John Wesley began that, God used him, it proclaimed the gospel. Folks, um, overall, it's one example. I'll give you a personal example in this regard. My grandfather, Don Wadsley, grew up in the Methodist church in a small town in Michigan. Well, his brother went to a series of evangelistic meetings outside of the church, And and trusted Christ and was gloriously saved. And his brother Walter said, Don, you've got to hear this. And my my grandfather, Don Maudsley went to those meetings and he heard the gospel and he trusted Christ. But he said this, I have never heard that truth before. And I've grown up in the Methodist church my whole life. Not that there aren't some churches that don't proclaim Christ. But overall, it's an example of a group of churches that we can't unify with because we're not even agreed on what the gospel is. The gospel isn't even preached many times. That's not the unity that we're talking about. Do we understand that? Now, there is gospel fellowship beyond Baptist distinctives. There's a unity of faith that is real regardless of denomination. Not that everybody, what I'm saying is, is that uh, there are many that are saved that let me just put it this way, that are not Baptists, right? You understand that? There was, I'll give another personal illustration here in closing. Um, I was out and about this last week and running some errands and Hudson was with me. And we were going in, we parked the car at Market Basket and we were going inside the Market Basket and this older gentleman parked beside me. He was obviously very talkative. Um, He was wanting to engage in conversation right away. And so he was very kind, and we were talking with him, and he said, you know, he said, I just recently had a series of, of medical difficulties, and he said, I almost lost my life, and I had some heart-related difficulties, and um, the and, and I was brought through those and thankful for that, but he said, it made me think about something. He said, it made me remember the truths of Scripture that I've been taught. He said, can I, can I take just a minute as we're walking in here to to tell you? And of course, you know, he doesn't know who I am yet, I'm not like, sure. He said, it reminded me that Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one cometh unto the Father but by me. He said, do you believe that? <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> My name is Pastor Brock Wadsley, and I'm the pastor of Village Chapel Baptist Church. And oh, that's great. And we were able to encourage each other in the Lord. And I said, I think it's great what you're doing. That's what we need to be doing is sharing the gospel. And, and thank you, brother, for your willingness to do that. And you know what, if I'd have had time and Hudson wasn't there, we were on a schedule, and he wanted to have a cup of coffee with me, we wanted to talk further about gospel truths, I'd be open to doing that. But let me just for my illustration here, say this, let's say that you ran into this man, and he, he told me that he was of some church, I don't even remember the name, it wasn't a Baptist church, well, let's say you ran into him and, and he invited you to his church and you sense that fellowship of the gospel. But you, now I have no idea what kind of church he attends. So just let's have to be clear about that. And you step into his church and you There are some things about that. There are some folks that just get up and they say, I have a word from the Lord and I want to share it with you. And um, they start talking in a different way that doesn't make much sense to us. And um you admit, let's say you invite that person that this this man to our church, and he's a part of our service, and he says, "I notice that you guys don't um, you don't take time to to listen to what the spirit imparts to others, and you know special prayer language and, and things, and you begin to realize that even though we have the gospel in common, there's a lot of other aspects. And and as I explained to him, or as you explained to him, well, we don't do that here. We don't think doctrinally that we don't need further revelation from the Holy Spirit because we have full revelation from God's word. And therefore, for somebody to get up and give us a new revelation of the Holy Spirit or speak in a special prayer language, that's just not something that we doctrinally think is right. And he would say, well, I'm just not comfortable here. We have a unity with him in the fellowship of the gospel. If, I, if you were to see him again or I were to see him again, I wouldn't turn from him and say, oh, you're one of those guys that goes to that church. No. I'd say, brother, how many people have you talked to about Jesus this week? And wonderful. And we would still have that fellowship in the gospel. But there is also a fellowship that Jesus is talking about here and one that we're going through on Sunday evenings out of Romans 14. And that is the local church that has a unity of understanding and, how, um, and what the Bible says. And we, we unite together on a clear understanding of full gospel truths. And Jesus expects a unity from us as well. And that is even in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Do you remember this? Paul says, I entreat Yodia. And I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. There's some squabbling going on. There's some tension. There's some arguments uh, that that are happening within the church. And Paul is saying, you're not reflecting God's unity very well. And you need to change those things. You know, it goes right back to what we're talking. It's so timely that we're talking about Romans 14 and these conscience issues. That we need to be unified, even though we have different individual conscience sensitivities, that the world as they come in should still see a unity that reflects the love of God and reflects um, the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. Not a, a picture of unity. Not a picture of a bunch of people that are odious and touchy and cantankerous. That doesn't proclaim Christ. As we finish up here. What was Jesus' prayer for his followers really throughout church history to the present day? He prayed for unity that testified of gospel truth. um, And that was of most importance to him at the end of this prayer. What is that unity? Gospel adherence, doctrinal truth, scriptural accuracy, and worshiping together in the midst of individual conscience sensitivities, Jesus is praying that our unity would reflect the relationship of the Father and the Son. Mind-blowing. And yet, folks, we cannot be content with anything less than that. Father, these truths that Jesus prays for us, are things that that we wouldn't have even maybe thought to have him pray for us. But we understand that if he's praying these things, these are things that we need. Lord, I pray that our church family understands what this unity is that Jesus is praying for. It's not just any old unity. Everybody get together, but it's based on the truth of scripture. And that you can give us a sense of unity with the gospel, moral issues, and, denominational distinctives that you can help us to be focused on the truth of your word and also be in unity in the um, difficulties that we have with each other and that Jesus prayed that our unity would in in some way or another reflect his unity with the father and be a testimony to the world. Or we're aware that many times we fall far short of that. And we pray that you would help us in some way or fashion to have this kind of unity. We know we can. Because if you prayed for it, it's possible. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're unified with the Father and with you. We have your indwelling presence in us. And we can accomplish this kind of unity that is so important. And so we pray for that, Lord, that we might as a church be such a marvelous picture of this kind of unity that people will wonder what is going on at Village Chapel Baptist Church. And your love and your truth proclaimed here would draw people to a knowledge of Christ. So we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.